Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Christian Sager, and today we're going to be talking about Ant-Man, the famous tiny little superhero who was uh, on the big screen over the summer, and about the science behind it, miniaturization, mm-hmm. ants, all different kinds of crazy, wacky science things that are actually, some are true and some are not. Before we get into that, though, I want to remind the audience that we do more than just podcast. In fact, if you follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr, you're going to see all the other things that we're putting out there. We've got videos like uh, How Stuff Works Now videos about weird science and technology. Uh, we're also doing blog posts over on StuffToBlowYourMind.com every day. So make sure that you uh, subscribe to whichever one of those you know channels is your particular favorite social media thing and follow us there because we're you know curating stuff all the time. And if you listen to us on iTunes, do us a favor. Head on over to iTunes and give us a nice review. Help boost that algorithm in our favor. It's a great way to support our show. And one last thing. We have started working on the other social media platform called Periscope. Uh, we've been doing it for about, I guess, two months now. And we try every Friday at noon Eastern Standard Time to be available uh, for about 20 or 30 minutes, hang out with our audience, talk to you about what's going on with the show, what we're recording, what we're researching, and what we have coming up in the next couple of weeks. So uh, we won't be on, we're currently recording this right before Christmas. So it's going to be a little bit uh, uh, off schedule, but once we get past the new year, I think we'll we'll get back onto that Friday schedule. All right, well, let's launch into it. We're talking about Ant Man. We're talking about ants. We're talking about the possible science of miniaturization. Uh, Ant Man, of course, is the the latest Marvel Cinematic Universe movie to come out. Came mm-hmm. out here in 2015. Mm-hmm. As of this recording, it has just uh, hit the digital uh, streaming market, oh, and right? uh, okay. I believe it's. It's either out on DVD and Blu-ray now, yeah. or it will be very soon. Okay. Uh, you, I believe you saw it in the theater. I did. I saw it in the theater. I'm, uh, as many of our listeners know, uh, a huge comic book fan and try to support comic book movies for the most part. I was a little bit on the fence about this one, to be mm-hmm. honest, but uh, I did go see it in the theater. Cool. And uh, I liked it okay. It wasn't like my favorite or anything, yeah. but but it, it, the science was particularly interesting. Yeah, the science was. Um I just saw it last week and I really enjoyed it. I was I definitely came into it not you know, wasn't certain what to expect because mm-hmm. on one hand I don't have any real attachment to Ant-Man. Yeah. And I even though I love miniaturization science fiction as we'll discuss, um yeah, I I I was kind of like, well, isn't it enough that he's little? Why does he have to talk to ants, too? Oh, yeah. And then I also had been following some of the production history with Edgar Wright being a yeah. part of it and then not being a part yeah. of it. That so. was part of my hesitant. Yeah. Uh, the reason why I was hesitant to see it was I'm a big Edgar Wright fan, and I, I, I had followed, you know, we don't need to go into all that here, but I had kind of followed the troubled production of this movie and was really looking forward to his take on the character. Um, but I, I think that there's some glimmers of his voice in that movie still. I think so, yeah. And, and, and uh, Joe Cornish, too, the guy who did Attack the Block, also helped work on the that's first right, draft. That's right, that's right. Yeah, I, th- I thought the end result was heck of a lot of fun. I enjoy it. And uh, after I saw it, I said, hey, let's uh, yeah. let's look at this. Let's, let's do an episode. You knew that I was a big nerd. So, <laughs> so here's the thing. Like For this episode, I'm going to try to restrain my comic 
nerddom, I am going to probably cover the segment on just sort of how comic book Ant-Man compares to, to movie Ant-Man. Mm-hmm. And I'll probably interject here or there, but Robert's going to keep me on track and we're going to try to stick <laughs> to the science of this because there's some really fascinating stuff that, uh, you know, I honestly like approaching this didn't think was going to turn out to be true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 it's kind of funny how much of, how much great science there is in mm-hmm. the film. Uh, so just to start off, let's talk a little bit about miniaturization science fiction itself, because it, this provides sort of the, the soil from which Ant-Man initially emerges. And then the, the latest incarnation, the film also, uh, comes out of this history. Yeah, there, um, it, there's a fascination, I think, that probably popped up in the late 50s and mm-hmm. early 60s, which is when Ant-Man the comic was created, with the idea of shrinking and or growing things, right? We were fascinated with giant ants mm-hmm. and bugs and stuff being monsters in, in horror movies. And, yeah, and I think a lot of this comes out of in, increased awareness of what's going on at the uh, the smaller levels of nature mm-hmm. and uh, and also our ability to share that with the general population. People are able to see these close-up photos and they're, and, and learning about our, our continuing exploration of these tiny realms. Yep. So one of the one of the big ones that we have to mention is, of course, uh, Richard Matheson's novel, The Shrinking Man, and the subsequent 1957 movie, The Incredible Shrinking Man. And I've read, I don't know how this matches up with the timeline, I've read that these were supposedly a big influence on uh, on Hank Pym, the, 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 Ant-Man, the character. Ant-Man character. Yeah, yeah, about his first adventure in which he... What he falls into an anthill? Yeah, that's the first, uh, the first comic that they did at Marvel with him. And I don't even know if he was necessarily a superhero at that point. I think it was just kind of a, you know, scientist, mad science gone uh-huh. awry story. But yeah, uh, man, Richard Matheson, like when you go back and look at that guy's resume, he influenced so much pop culture. Oh yeah, he did. And of course we have to mention the 1966 film Fantastic Voyage in which a tiny submarine that contains a miniaturized uh, Raquel Welch and a miniaturized Donald Pleasance <laughs> and some other people that of, of varying importance. Yeah. And they are, you know, sent into the bloodstream going in there to address uh, an illness uh, at a, at a at a very small scale. Yeah, there's there's there is a fascination like with this shrinking and growing thing, right? Like, uh, yeah. the, the, the ones that I remember are more often the, the growing ones, like Attack of the 50 Foot Woman. That's one, right? That was one of yes. those, like, big, uh, uh, movies of the time. Amazing Colossal Man. That was, yeah. uh, another and giant. Them? Film. Yeah. Them was the that's ant, the ant one. Yeah. Um, now, of course, Fantastic Voyage itself kind of spins off into its own little franchise. Isaac Asimov did the, the novelization in 1966, and we'll discuss some of uh, his science that he injects into the franchise uh, in a bit. He also did uh, Fantastic Voyage 2, Destination Brain, in 87. <laughs> I read the former novel, but I remember trying to read the, the second one. I was like in junior high at the time, and I think I just kind of timed out on yeah. some of the science yeah. again at the time. I should give it another read. Um, Kevin J. Anderson did Fantastic Voyage Microcosm much later, in which the crew explores the body of a dead alien. Wow. That sounds interesting. And I was, uh, I was surprised to hear that in 68, there was a Fantastic Voyage animated series. I don't think I've ever no, seen a clip of this. I either. haven't either. Yeah. That's, in fact, like my knowledge of the whole Fantastic Voyage you know, franchise is rather limited. This sounds like a treasure trove of stuff to go back to. Yeah. And then, of course, Fantastic Voyage itself directly influenced um, the fabulous 1987 film <laughs> Inner Space. This is one I remember from growing up. I was mm-hmm. 10 when this came out and uh, they hadn't 
I want to say it was like Universal Studios or something like that when I was a kid had an inner space ride. Uh-huh. And it was like one of those things where you, you went into a room with like shaky seats and you basically watched a movie where like Martin Short or somebody walked you through as you, you went through the human body, <laughs> you know. Um, it was pretty cool. Yeah, it's a, it was a great film, I remember, to watch as a kid because mm-hmm. you had all the, you know, you had all this Martin Short, was uh, manic Martin, stuff. Dan, Dennis Quaid was the other Yeah, guy. Dennis Quaid was, was miniaturized yeah. in this cool little submarine in Martin Short. Yeah. And then in the climax that I just, I must have watched dozens of times as a kid, you had, uh, the bad guys miniaturized as well in his own little robot suit <laughs> and they do battle in, uh, in the stomach. It's kind of, of a prequel Short. to Ant-Man. In a way, yeah. They didn't, they didn't really go in anybody's body in Ant-Man. It's true. For the most part, it's because he's ant-sized and not like, they're like microscopic and. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, they're much smaller. Yeah. But, but very similar, especially when you get into the, the battling of oh, the yeah. foes. Yeah. Uh, and then of course, Fantastic Voyage and Inner Space went on to, uh, influence, um, there's a Futurama episode, Para- Parasites Lost. <laughs> Uh, do you remember this one? This no. is where Fry gets intestinal worms from eating a, I think like a tuna fish sandwich that he buys from a condom machine at a <laughs> galactic truck stop. Uh, always a bad idea. Uh, but that's, that's a great miniaturization episode. Yeah. There's a wonderful Rick and Morty episode titled Anatomy Park. I, yeah, I can only imagine the, mm-hmm. the mind of, um, Dan Harmon. Yeah. work on something like that. Sounds so, like a Jurassic Park uh Honey I Shrunk the Kids mashup. Yeah, yeah, but pretty much it's well, it's uh it's it's kind of a fantastic voyage meets uh meets Jurassic Park. So okay. you have all these deadly viruses that are kept in kind of a Jurassic Park inside the body of uh I think it's an alcoholic homeless Santa Claus. <laughs> okay. And then yeah. you get you get yourself miniaturized and then you go and visit and you can meet all these terrible uh you know pathogens. Yeah, this sounds like Dan Harmon yeah. with an unlimited budget. So and then I just mentioned Honey I Shrunk the Kids, which is, you know, I, what were there three of those movies or something like that? I can't remember, but uh Yeah, there was they shrunk the kid and then they blew up the baby. Something like that. Yeah. And then I don't remember I think there was a third, but I never saw it. They were one. definitely uh again, like I, I wanna say that those came out sometime in my preteen years or something like that. So mm-hmm. I remember seeing them, but I don't remember a lot about them. It was that sort of era when like CGI was was just really starting to become convincing. Yeah. So the idea of uh, Rick Moranis getting shrunken down into his his front yard and having to travel around with all the <laughs> yeah, I believe ants again. Ants are like the the go-to for this miniaturization thing. Yeah, I mean because as we'll discuss in the second ha- half of this episode, they are so fascinating and yeah. their world is is just so alien and and, and intricate that uh, we we can't help but imagine ourselves immersed in it. And then, you know, this, a lot of this spawned into and also out of comic books. There is as much of a fascination with miniaturization in comics as there is in film and television from that time. So you've got Ant-Man, uh, DC has their version of Ant-Man, which is the Atom. Okay. Uh, and then, uh, Ant-Man has his wife, the Wasp. Uh, well, sometimes wife, sometimes not wife. Uh, I'll talk about that in a little bit. And, uh, there's, there's all kinds of other series. In fact, there was even, I think, uh, in the eighties, there was a, a series called Micronauts that was oh, about like, uh, yeah. like, uh, it was sort of like Star Wars meets Ant-Man, right? Like the mm-hmm. idea was like they, they lived in this tiny microverse that was so small. It, uh, it was completely like, a, it was sort of like the quantum realm, uh, from Ant-Man. Oh, cool. All right. Well, 
tell me about Ant Man. Tell, tell, I'm coming at it as a guy who right. basically knows what I saw in the film, and you know, skimming a few, uh, uh, you know, comic uh, wiki pages about him. Okay, give me the full story. So well, Ant Man's created in 1962 at Marvel Comics by the usual suspects, Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. Uh, also, with some help from Larry Lieber, who is Stan Lee's brother, uh, and basically it. The character has usually been the version that Michael Douglas portrays in the movie, right? The older Hank Pym character. Okay. Except for he's not older in the, in the original comics. Um, but the, the gist is he's a super scientist who fights crime. The way he does it is he has these, uh, Pym particles that he's invented that enable him to shunt his mass or gain mass from an alternate dimension. Uh, and he either shrinks or he gets big. And he used to, like, swallow capsules, I think, when they first came out. Um, then he breathed in particle-filled gas. I think that's why that the helmet, the Ant-Man helmet, sort of has, like, a gas mask look to it. Mm-hmm. And then, eventually, if I remember the the canon correctly, <laughs> there's something about how his body absorbed the Pym particles. So he was basically just producing them on his own. And he could, at will, shrink or grow. And he could also, like, shrink or grow uh, other objects nearby him or other people. Okay, so is it kind of like the whole Spider-Man deal where... At times, Spider-Man is shooting webs because he's made fantastic little devices, and other times it becomes more a part of who he is physically? Uh, no. Uh, I think it's, like, because those are two, like, this is super nerdy, <laughs> but that the comic book version is the one with the uh, web shooters. The mm-hmm. movie version is the one where it shoots out organically. Oh, okay, so he never shoots it out organically in the comics? They, they retconned it uh, later on in, like, the 2000s oh, okay. uh, for a series called Ultimate Spider-Man. But, yes. So, uh, in this case, I think it was, like, sort of the same character in the same universe, but he just, you know, over time, they were like, uh Capsules? That's kind of lame. Let's do gas. Uh, we don't, he doesn't need the gas. He can just change. You know? <laughs> um, and so the deal was, was he was Ant-Man. He joins the Avengers. He usually teams up with his girlfriend, sometimes wife, Janet Van Dyne, who is the wasp. And in the movie, they sort of hint at that and they show flashbacks to their crime fighting career together. Uh, the, the thing about Ant-Man, so spoilers for Ant-Man comics that are like, I guess, 40 years old at this point. Uh, but, uh, the thing about Ant-Man that isn't really touched upon in the movies at all is that he has tons of different identities. So Ant-Man isn't just Hank Pym's identity. He also becomes giant man where he just grows and smashes things. And then I guess he thought giant man wasn't a cool enough name. So he changes it to Goliath. And then he changes his name to Yellow Jacket and he starts shrinking again. Uh, and then there's even a point, I think it was, this was in the 2000s where the wasp died or something. Mm-hmm. And to, uh, honor her memory, he became the wasp. So he was like the male version of the wasp. All right. So he, he recognized that you gotta keep mixing it up. You gotta keep reinventing yourself. So much so that like, I believe it is part of the character's history that he had multiple, uh, personality disorder because like he was having a difficult time <laughs> tracking all of his secret identities and something to do with the, the, the particle ingestion was messing with his mind. So like when he's the yellow jacket character, he's almost like a different person. Um, and and sort of a villain. Uh, and sometimes he gets brainwashed by villains. Other times he's replaced by shape-shifting aliens. So this character has this like really bizarre history of sometimes just being 
completely aloof to what's going on in the rest of the, the, the storylines around him basically because he's not himself. Uh, to the point that there is a classic storyline in Ant-Man that I'm sure the film producers tried to stay away from as much as possible in which, uh, Ant-Man becomes very aggressive in his person, persona as Yellow Jacket and has a mental breakdown. And when the wasp tries to intervene because they're married at this point, he hits her and is expelled from the Avengers. They end up getting a divorce. Uh, and then I think like, you know, maybe 20 or 30 years later in the comics, they resume their romance. But so he's sort of like the Ant-Man I grew up with reading in the 80s was always this like disheveled guy who had like been broken because like he had this mental breakdown and then like was was sort of reviled by all the other superheroes because hmm. he hit his wife. Uh, and, oh, and also he is in the comics, the guy who invents Ultron, the big bad robot from the Avengers movie. Oh, so yeah. Everybody's like, great. You hit your wife and you uh, invent this robot that accidentally tries to kill us all the time. OK, so l- luckily in the in the, the Marvel films, we've gotten to, to move that off and blame that on Tony Stark. Yeah, exactly. They, they, they chose to give that to Robert Downey Jr. He was already charming enough. All right. Well, let's uh, let's get into the movie a bit now before we get into. The miniaturization science and the quantum physics and, and then ultimately uh, what we see some of the, the ants doing in the picture. Yeah. Um, you want to touch on some of the just uh, straight up uh, caper science that we yeah, see when, Well, when I was watching it, I was sort of stunned by the scene. So, again, if you haven't seen the movie, we're going to spoil the hell out of it this episode. But uh, Scott Lang, who is the not Ant-Man at this point, the mm-hmm. premise of the movie is that Scott Lang breaks into Hank Pym's house to steal the suit. Uh, the, the sort of heisty stuff that he does to get in past his defenses were sciencey in a way. Uh, and at the time I was watching it and I was like, this is completely false. Like there's no way that you could get past a fingerprint scanner with super glue the way that he does. And in fact, Joe and I are, are working on something right now about forensic science and, uh, super glue fuming is a thing that is done to gather fingerprint evidence. Uh, and so much so that it's one of the few ways that you can pull a fingerprint off of a dead body. Hmm. So there is some science to that, but it's not necessarily, I don't know that you could take the super glue itself, reform it, and then turn it into something that a fingerprint scanner would understand. Yeah. You know, much less do it on the fly like that. He's like, oh, oh yeah, what is this like five scanner? Uh, gets, let's get some super glue. Yeah. And I don't even want to get into, doesn't he like freeze the door somehow? Yeah. To yeah, break he, like through? bust the safe by free, like filling it with water and then freezing the water. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I, Maybe there's some science to that one, too. I didn't look too deep into that. But I wanted to mention that they they at least tried. There's some stuff going on there. The super glue thing is uh, slightly accurate. Um, but the reason for this is that they had uh, a, an actual scientist on set who was sort of their, I guess, reference point and uh, advisor. And his name is Dr. Spiros Michalikis. Uh, he's from Caltech, California, and he consulted mainly about quantum physics and the miniaturization stuff. Mm-hmm. But, you know, maybe he also was like, by the way, you can break into this lock with superglue. <laughs> All right. So, we, yeah, we're going to touch on uh, some of Michalikas's, um thoughts and uh, mm-hmm. on, on the science uh, of Ant-Man. We're also going to reference The Physics of Superheroes by James uh, Kakalios. Yeah. A lot of Greek guys looking into the science of, yeah. uh, <laughs> of uh, superheroes here. Uh, so I do want to add here before we dive into this that so obviously it would have been ideal if we had done this right when the movie came out in theaters. But I, I actually like that we're not because so much was paid attention to the science in articles 
or in other uh, kind of, you know, content that was created around the Internet when that movie came out that we're able to sort of gather it all together, compare notes and do like the full shebang now. Yeah. Where um, like Wired had some pieces and Nerdist had some pieces, but they didn't have like all of it together. And this I feel like we're able to bring it all together now a couple months later. Yeah. And plus, if you're like me and you only get out to see a movie in the theater once or twice yeah. a year, then, you know, this is this is maybe a more ideal time. So. Let's start off by talking about miniaturization, which, again, we've seen in so many different uh, science fiction films and uh, and TV shows and comics. But how would it possibly work? So here's the thing, just to get this out of the way. Miniaturization, as we comprehend it, is physically impossible based on our understanding of physics. There's so many reasons why it wouldn't work. Not not even just the miniaturization, but we'll talk later as well as like, even if you could come up with some way to miniaturize a body, there's so many things that would go wrong with that body once it's miniaturized. Yeah, it's like going from, you know, Duplos to normal Legos uh, (laughs) or vice versa. Yeah. Yeah. So as um, uh, Kakalios points out in his book, uh, at, at, at a very basic level, matter's made out of atoms, and the size of an atom is a fundamental length scale of nature, and it's not open to continuous adjust, adjustment. Right. And furthermore, Isaac Asimov, who, of course, had to crunch the science way back when he did his novelization of Fantastic Voyage, uh, which is interesting because, as I recall, the, the story there was they said, hey, hey, Isaac, we need you to write a novelization of this hot new film. And he's like, I don't want to do it. And they finally agreed to let him uh, to, to get him to do it, provided he got to tweak the science and oh, try really? and make it work a little bit. Oh, good for him. Yeah. So in his novelization, he points out that to make something smaller, it, it requires either one, making the atom smaller, two, removing a large fraction of the atoms or three, pushing the atoms closer together. Right. And there's I believe Kakalios and others have sort of debunked why those things wouldn't work. either. Yeah. But yeah, I should also point out we mentioned that uh, sequel that Asimov did Fantastic Voyage uh, to Destination Brain. Um, and in that he provided his own sci fi model for miniaturization, which would involve the creation of a, quote, local distortion field that changes the value of Planck's constant. And mm-hmm. that's a that's a physical constant that is the quantum of action, central and quantum mechanics, and it's a fundamental constant of the universe. But if you could adjust Planck's constant and therefore make it, I guess, Planck's adjustable, uh, <laughs> you could shrink things as you please. But it's all sci-fi magic as to how you might do it. And I think that's right. ultimately a part of any of these models is there you can sort of say, all right, point A, and we can get sort of say point C, and we can get our result, but there's a, a missing point of magic in yeah, there that evolved, and that's what makes it science fiction. Exactly. Yeah, you have to like the connecting thread between the things, even even as much as you do. You know, I admire that, that he did the research to sort of kind of come up with various ways, but they don't necessarily connect. But uh, so Kakalios in his book uh, argues that if pim particles were somehow able to change the mass of electrons, that those particles would then be in closer orbits, and the um. This is called the Bohr radius. We're going to end up talking about this and Planck's constant quite a bit. And so those particles would be closer in orbit to the respective atoms and molecules that they surround. And because electrons and the interactions between them are ultimately what prevent these objects from ever really touching each other, uh, having all the electrons in an object suddenly gain mass would theoretically shrink the whole object. Hmm. But again, I'm not quite sure that that all adds up. So, and like we said, atoms are always the same size, right? Uh, in fact, they're a third of a nanometer. That's kind of how we quantify them. Uh, this is 
as Planck's constant uh, implies, a constant of quantum mechanics. So if you change the size of an atom, you would have to come up with a mechanism that just changes the value of all constants in science, right? It would just yeah. completely throw off physical properties of everything, not just like shrink things. So uh, so instead, Kakalios recommends this changing the Bohr radius method, uh, which is related to the average size of an atom. I, I don't know. I, I don't think they actually add up. But uh, there is um, an, uh, another person who did some really great science articles over at Wired.com. I believe his name is Rhett Elaine. He always does these fun articles looking at the science of superheroes whenever one of these big budget um, superhero movies comes out. He did two articles on Ant-Man. Uh, and so he proposed two options. One was uh, Ant-Man could keep his same mass... But in this scenario, his density would increase. Okay. Okay. So he shrinks, but he's he's super dense. At half an inch tall, he would be 2.8 million times more dense than a regular human. So he would obviously just sink right through everything. He, okay. he would sink through a tabletop. He would sink through the earth. You know. So he wouldn't be able to ride an ant around. No. But he I would, like kill every ant he sits on. Yeah. <laughs> but I remember thinking, like, when they when they just miniaturized him in the film and suddenly yeah. he's showing all these superpowers. I was thinking, well, maybe it's, this, there's a certain amount of density involved. Yeah. Here. Like essentially he's this really heavy bullet that can just launch himself. Yeah. Like that things. he's, or like that he's moving the density around in his body some way, right? Like yeah. maybe he's moving that 2.8 million times of density into his fist. And that's why when he punches people at super tiny size, I don't know. It doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't quite work out, but that was one of Elaine's best, uh, guesses. Uh, so there's that, or he could keep his same density and have a lower mass, but where does the mass go? And that's essentially the, the argument of the Stanley science behind this, which mm-hmm. is, well, it just goes into an alternate dimension. Um, so like there's an exhaust pipe of just pure energy. Yeah. yeah. I want to know, I want to like see what this alternate a dimension white hole looks like somewhere. It's the like Hank Pym all of Hank yeah. Pym's mass or where, what kind of mass is he pulling in when he, when he grows larger? Uh, but yeah, so the idea here is that, uh, you know, it would potentially also convert to energy. Like if you're shunting that kind of mass around, I think Elaine even says at one point that like that, if you do the math on it, the amount of energy that would be created if he was shrinking down to the size he is could like power a city or something like that. <laughs> um, so the best he comes up with is this shifting mass thing, putting it into other dimensions. And the way he looks at it is like, well, he does like an illustration of, uh, if you move two dimensions into three dimensions, here's how it would work. And then he sort of hypothesizes maybe what's going on with Ant-Man is he's shifting three-dimensional mass into a fourth dimension somehow that we're not quite aware of. This would allow him to have the same mass, the same strength and everything, but he wouldn't actually be small, right? It would just be like an illusion mm-hmm. because we're seeing like a fourth-dimensional object in, thir- in three dimensions or something like that. Yeah, yeah, we have... Three spatial dimensions and a, and a fourth dimension of time. Yeah. But in, in this uh, case, it would be a fourth spatial dimension. Exactly. Which makes me, you know, try and imagine it. It's kind of, kind of like this big dude and then he becomes small and he pushes his excess mass out into a gigantic tumor yeah. that extends into, uh, another spatial dimension. This is what I think the, the, the people who are currently working on Ant-Man comics should be exploring is like, what does that gross fourth dimension look like where he's just yeah. pushing mass and pulling mass. There's got to be something creepy to tell. Yeah, there. I'm just imagining like origami and an Aphex Twin video coming together. <laughs> yeah, it would work perfectly. I think that's what the Edgar Wright version of the movie would have been like. <laughs> so, okay. 
So this leads us to the big question. Yeah, miniaturization is totally impossible. But what about this whole Ant-Man strength thing, right? So the the premise is right, because that, that's a big big part of it. It's not yeah. only is he small. It's one thing to be small and like spying people and maybe move their yeah. pins around, but ultimately he's also able to fight dudes that are giants to him. Yeah, in the movies he's like. He can jump with this amount of strength that he would have if he was normal size. So he's this this ant that's leaping up and jumping around guns and stuff like that and punching people out. Uh, and this goes back to the comics uh, in Tales to Astonish number 38. Pym says that he retains all of his normal size and strength when he shrinks. Uh, and Kakalios asks in his book, how does Ant-Man punch his way out of a paper bag? <laughs> and he uses an example from one of the old comics in which uh, Ant-Man gets trapped in a vacuum bag. I think like he gets vacuumed up and he's in the bag and he just punches his way right through because he's like, well, I have the strength of a normal sized guy and a normal sized guy can punch through this bag. So no whoop. Um, there's interesting science behind this that it may be plausible. Now, remember the miniaturization. We don't have an answer for that, but. Uh, our actual strength comes from our skeleton and our muscles, and they act like a series of interconnected levers, right? So think of strength as lift. And our arms are the levers that lift things and throw them, right? Well, if you use the principles of uh, seesaw and torque, as Kakalios does, he argues Ant-Man could punch his way out of a bag. Um, basically, it goes like this. The ratio of movement in the human arm is one to seven, regardless of what your size is, right? It's all about uh, the cross-sectional area of muscles in our arms. Uh, so it's not the length that matters. It's sort of their proportions, okay? So if Ant-Man, this is Kakalios's math. If Ant-Man is 0.01 times his normal height, the force of his muscles provide a reduced factor of, ready for it? squared, which equals .0001, and at normal size, if he could punch with a force of 200 pounds, divide that by his fist cross-sectional size of 5 square inches, okay? The pressure his fist applies is 40 pounds per square inch. So he's, he's making a rough guess that, like, a normal size person, you know, could, could probably make about 40 pounds per square inch punch, okay? Okay. Uh, at tiny size, he delivers less force, right? In fact, it would be, in comparison to the 200 pounds, 0.02 pounds. But his fist is also smaller. So the force per unit area of his tiny punch also comes out to 40 pounds per square inch when you do the math, which is 0.02 pounds divided by the size of 0.0005 square inches for his fist size. So Kakalios did all this out, and he thinks... He, regardless of the size, he can punch with a pressure of 40 pounds per square inch and therefore punch his way out of a paper bag. Uh, but my question is this. What happens when he grows? I know in the Ant-Man movie, like, he hasn't gotten to that point yet. I'm sure that'll be in the sequel where he gets big, right? But, mm-hmm. like, uh, I, th- I think there was a scene where, like, uh, an ant accidentally, like, ingested the stuff and got oh, big, Oh, yeah, it right? gets the size of a dog and it has no problem moving around. Yeah, yeah. So, like, what, based on this cross-sectional area math, mm-hmm. does that then mean if, like, he's giant man that he's still also punching with 40 pounds per square inch? because it's based on the cross-section of his fist size and the force that his his arm is applying. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there are a whole set of uh, of constraints that come into play in the, the when you start thinking about the giant size. Uh, for instance, uh, Kakalios points out that 
you could compare giant man to a redwood tree. Okay. So the taller the tree, the wider the trunk. And in order to provide support for the large mass above it, the tree needs a very broad base. And he says, quote, right. giant man could, in principle, grow as tall as a redwood tree, but he would have to be just as mobile. So he yeah. just immediately fall over. Yeah. Yeah. I think I remember there's like a point where they sort of update the comics. Uh, and when he does the giant man thing, that's something he talks about. Like he has a really hard time balancing. Uh, yeah, I mean, it just, it's a, it's more about the anatomy. Oh, yeah, right, yeah. Than it is about, uh, the size. Yeah, like an example that I've run across uh, multiple times when dealing with large, uh, fantastic creatures, particularly when you're talking about Godzilla and King Kong sure. and stuff, is think of a cow as a sphere, okay? A spherical cow. Uh, and as a sphere gets bigger, its volume increases more rapidly than its surface area. Double the radius of a sphere, uh, and the surface area increases four times, and the volume increases eight times. So you double something size, and you keep its proportions the same. Well, that means that the weight doesn't double or even quadruple. It increases by a factor of eight. Mm. So a creature's morphography, especially human morphography, wouldn't be able to match that. You need stockier limbs. Right. Um, giant man might need to walk around on all fours like a like a <laughs> like a dinosaur. That'd be great. And then you'd have to also factor in things like blood flow. And other issues, yeah. Like, like think of the giraffe. Since the giraffe's brain is so far away from its heart, it uh, boasts an extremely high blood blood pressure, about twice that found in humans. And uh, and plus, the gi- giraffe heart beats up to 170 times per minute, double that of humans. And the plumbing is uh, is also positioned so that uh, so that there's a. Um, a special net of arteries and veins that divert blood flow uh, when it lowers its head to drink to hmm. keep this uh, increased pressure uh, to the head from making yeah. its uh, its head explode. Yeah, I. So okay, the pim particles may address the fictional science of like shunting mass to another dimension, but they certainly don't address all those anatomical needs, both in the large form of giant man or Goliath or whatever mm-hmm. he wants to call himself this week, or when he gets tiny as Ant-Man, right? It's kind of like thinking from an, like an economic uh, point of view. Like imagine a McDonald's restaurant in a small town, right? Mm-hmm. And just thinking about the economics of it, if you were to say, hey, let's make this a bigger operation, let's put one on every street corner. Let's let's do 16 McDonald's restaurants in this one small town. Can Does that make sense? Yeah. Because it's not isolated. Right. It's not existing in a bubble it's tied in to the economic uh, infrastructure of the surrounding area and that's what we see time and time again with miniaturization or or, uh, or or giant man is that whatever the size of the being it's it's atomic structure it's molecular structure the the, the it's it's morphography every, every aspect of its existence is tied into the fabric that's going to have to exist our world. in the ecosystem around it that isn't shrinking or growing right and that is the hard part yeah that and that involves the building blocks that involves the mm-hmm. function everything yeah and this is you know why you know you, we always hear this like i don't know what the exact figure is but like Ants are 50 times stronger than human beings are for their proportional size or whatever. Mm-hmm. This is basically why, because of that whole cross-sectional anatomy type thing, right? Okay, so Ant-Man gets his strength from the fact that an organism's volume is dependent on the cube of its height, right? But if you extrapolate the math all the way outwards, you get these ants that can lift objects that are many times their own mass, right? So that's where that comes from it's mm-hmm. that the, the the anatomy of the ant is giving them the strength not necessarily the size yeah and i mentioned they also took some inspiration from the the, the jumping power of the common flea which yeah. has the the most tremendous jumping potential for its size of any creature on the planet 
Yeah, that's definitely like the the bits where he's like bouncing around yeah. and, and jumping off bullets and stuff. All right, so there's a scene in the movie where, and this is like I think pretty spoilerish for the movie. Uh, he shrinks down so small that he enters into. Do they call it the quantum realm in the they movie? They do. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and so basically, the, the fictional premise here is that like there's something. With the suit, where like if if you don't regulate it the right way or something, you shrink down and you're lost forever in the quantum realm. And this is what happened to the yeah, original wasp. Like right? if you try and go too small in order yeah. to, you know, go through a, a particularly difficult uh, a material, then uh, you run the risk of just getting smaller and smaller, entering the quantum realm, and just losing yourself in a place where the the rules of uh, of our physical world don't necessarily hold. So this way. is sort of like the movie logic and comic logic, I guess, of like why he doesn't get smaller than half an inch tall, right? Yeah, because he just he gets way out of his league uh-huh. the smaller he gets. Uh, and of course, there's a this is based in large part on. On, on a, a very real place that we, we as scientists actually call the quantum realm. And this is where events play out at distances of nanometers. Many laws in classical physics, uh, of the classical physics appear to break down. So in the quantum realm, for instance, scientists can predict very little with 100% accuracy. According mm-hmm. to Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, you can't even measure the position of an object without disturbing its momentum in an unpredictable way. Classical physics, uh, Physics also uh, fail uh, to account for this phenomenon as it serves as a prime example of, of what we call quantum weirdness. <laughs> I um, like that. Yeah. There's also the the so-called uh, EPR paradox, named for Albert Einstein, uh, Bors uh, Podolsky, and uh, Nathan Rosen. And this applies an even, extra- even stranger example of quantum weirdness, in which two subatomic particles, thousands of light years apart, uh, can uh, instantaneously respond to each other's motions. And uh, this is, of course, quantum entanglement uh, that takes place uh, at the particle level. And uh, and it, in uh, 2009, scientists were actually able to produce the effect with linked uh, superconductors. Jeez. Okay. So it's it's a place where, yeah, we're thinking weird. Things are we're, we're still trying to understand how everything works. It's also a perfect place for magic and the unexplained to emerge in a yeah. comic book. Yeah, and definitely, like I I, I think. A lot of people described Ant-Man as like the weirdest superhero you've ever seen. And I Mm -hmm. think the quantum realm stuff is probably why, because like when he goes into the quantum realm, it's basically like a psychedelic acid trip, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I thought they did a good job of presenting it that way. Cause Mm -hmm. I mean, how do you visually present this quantum realm? Yeah. Well, the human senses at that size wouldn't be able to comprehend what's going on. It's interesting too. You ask if they actually call it the quantum realm in uh, the movie and apparently uh, we can thank um, uh, Michalikas for that because they were going to call it the microverse. So, okay, that's <laughs> that that's from the comics. That's yeah. why I was surprised because I was like, oh, it's the microverse. He's going to go to the microverse where the micronauts live. Right. But <laughs> but the thing is, like, apparently microverse is tied up with some legal issues. Yeah. So they asked uh, Michalikas, they asked it, they said, hey, what's a better term? And he rattled off a list of possible terms and they said, ooh, quantum realm. That's the one. <laughs> and, ooh, the real thing. Yeah, it's, it's both the real thing and also it sounds far sounds more fantastic cool. than any of the other options. Yeah, I don't remember what the deal is with the legal issues, but Micronauts is owned by some toy company, like it might be Kenner or somebody like okay. that. And therefore, I think things that are related to that can't be used by Marvel and cinema. So what are some other issues that uh, that pop up? All right. So let's pretend for a second that we can miniaturize. We okay. can, let's, let's agree with Stanley Science or shunting mass off to an alternate tumor dimension. Uh, but 
there's lots of issues with our human anatomy when we get to that size. So just think about communicating if you're Ant-Man size, right? If you shrink to the size of an ant, your vocal cords will shrink as well, which will raise your voice from 200 hertz to about 3,400 hertz. So you'd have this really high-pitched, squeaky voice. So even if he had, like, the little headset or whatever that allows him to communicate with normal-sized people, they would just hear this really high-pitched, like, like he just... I guess sucked in helium or something. Yeah, you'd have to have an adapter that then is uh, translating mm-hmm. it into normal speech. Yeah. Uh, and, and this is from Kakalios, by the way, in his book. Uh, and he also did some interviews around the time that the movie came out. Uh, so he also wouldn't be able, Ant-Man wouldn't be able to project his voice because he'd have so much less air in his diagram. Again, like he's shrinking. The size of air molecules yeah. are not shrinking. So he's not going to be able to fit them in his, in his lungs, right? Uh, also, the vibrating cilia in his ears would also shrink, which would go from him being able to hear 20 hertz to 340 hertz. He wouldn't be able to hear normal human speech, which, again, is at 200 hertz. Mm-hmm. So it would just be like this tone that he's not able to distinguish. And finally, his vision would be terrible uh, <laughs> because the size of his eye opening is not a hundred, or rather, as ours are, hundreds of times greater than the wavelength of light, right? So when he shrinks down, now it would only be like ten times as great as the wavelength of light. This would basically make everything fuzzy and blurred because light waves would be scattering off of his iris and diffracting differently than they normally do. This is why insects have eyes that are so drastically different than than our eyes. Yeah, and even so, uh, the ant from you know from whom he takes his uh, namesake have generally terrible vision yeah. so in a sense that would make it would it would work perfectly that ant-man couldn't see jack and we talked about density you know briefly but again if he can ride on top of an ant then his mass has got to also decrease in some way or if his density remains constant because keep in mind density equals mass divided by volume uh he's going to sink right through the yeah. ant it's so many dead ants um breathing so i, I talked about this briefly right so okay He's going to have trouble breathing. And that's they sort of hint at that, right? Like that's in the movie. They're like, well, he has to wear the suit like you can't just right. shrink. Like he has to have a miniaturized air supply as well because yeah. he needs miniaturized air molecules to breathe. Yeah. They don't really address how they're miniaturizing the air. But let's let's assume that that's what they're doing. But essentially, the science would go like this. If you were suddenly shrunk down, the air would be. Uh, like as if you were at the top of the tallest mountain, the amount of air would stay the same, but the volume it occupies would drastically increase relative to you and your new tiny size. So if you're the size of atoms, there's no way you could inhale the billions of oxygen atoms you would need to keep your human-sized metabolism running smoothly. Again, it ties into the just the economics of yeah. this creature, and it, it has to exist within the local economy. Uh, and Michaelicus... Uh, also brought up the idea of uh, Ant-Man would have some uh, problems with cooling down. So because uh, he wouldn't have the same amount of surface area that he normally has to dissipate the heat that his body generates, even moderate exertion would generate an incredible amount of heat without anywhere to go, unless maybe the heat is also going to that uh, magical fourth dimensional tumor thing. Yeah. Or his suit is operating as a cooling still suit. Yeah. Which also doesn't work as uh, Joe and I explored in the Dune episodes. (laughs) 
It's all, it, yeah, it's all weird. It, even down to the point where, like, apparently, uh, I think this was another Rhett Elaine uh, article, that he would run really weird. So the same way we were talking about, like, if you're giant size, you would need to have, like, kind of stumpy legs yeah. to balance, right? If he gets shrunk down in proportion to the gravitational field, he would be running in this very bizarre way, and it, it would be, like, kind of like these small hops is what it would <laughs> basically look like. Um, and that's not even getting into the materials science, right? So... Maybe he can shrink himself, uh, but how does he shrinking his suit or his clothes or all the other things around him? In the comics, they explain it away with something called that Stanley was just like, ah, unstable molecules. That's it. <laughs> and, and, uh, yeah, unstable molecules are actually a real thing, but these are the molecules that are falling apart or exploding for one reason or another. Uh, so there's, th- that's not really much of a, an answer, but in, in comics, that's like, this is how the human torch can like set himself on fire and his clothes don't burn away. Okay. Or, or so how Mr. Fan- pants, right? Yeah. Hulk's okay. pants or Mr. Fantastic can stretch really far and his clothes don't rip. Uh, presumably Ant-Man is also wearing something made of unstable molecules. Uh, the, the closest we've got to this in real life is there's shape memory materials and they basically have an original configuration and then they get deformed and they can undergo phase transitions based on like temperature temperature changes, pressure, or applied electrical fields. So, like um, a superhero example of this, think of Batman in those um, Christopher Nolan movies. He applies an electrical field to his cape, and it uh-huh. makes it hard, so he can kind of glide around. And then the electrical field goes away, and it goes back to just being a cape. It's it's kind of hilarious that that a certain amount of thought and science, <laughs> or at least science fiction, went into trying to figure out how to make these superheroes wear clothes. But when it comes to the the female characters, especially, there's there's a tremendous amount of effort in trying to make them wear as little as possible. Oh yeah, oh yeah. So they should, they might as well have just said, "Hey, sorry, science says that our superheroes can't wear clothes; they have to be naked." If you really want to go down the internet rabbit hole, <laughs> uh, look up how many costumes the Wasp has worn over the years. Uh, she's, I, I believe they explained it away at one point by saying like, oh, she's a fashion designer. <laughs> so she's constantly changing her costume. But like, there's like hundreds of costumes and they, they go from, you know, kind of conservative and moderate to, yeah, it gets pretty skimpy around the nineties. Okay. So let's talk about these ants. So the premise, the set, the, the if Ant-Man's power set is shrinking and controlling ants, yes. right? And they, how do they explain it? That the helmet somehow emits frequencies or pheromones or something like that that allow him to control ants' movements. Basically, like he's like playing a video game, right? Uh, and it, the way that they show it in the movie is like Hank Pym even wears like kind of like it looks like a, a hearing aid, but it's actually like his little controller, right? <laughs> Yeah, it's like a what a cybernetic helmet. I think it's sometimes explained, but but it, again, this yeah, this gets kind of iffy as to how he's actually controlling them because when it comes to ant communication, um, most of this is happening via those pheromones, like you say, it's mm-hmm. chemical messages detected by other ants through their antenna, and then this is supported by tactile, acoustic, and least of all, a little visual communication. So we're talking a. High-pitched chirps, uh, strokes with the antenna and forelegs, vibration, and how's a, a helmet going to manage all right. of that? <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, it, th- this is from the comics, too. I mean, mm-hmm. like, they definitely build this into the, the Ant-Man character in the comics pretty early because I think that that was how their explanation, basically, for how he got around was that, like, he rode around on ants with wings. Yeah. And that's how he got from one place to another at tiny size. The interesting part is that if you're looking at it as Ant-Man manipulating the ants and winning their aid, 
aid, uh, you know, by making them believe that he's some sort of privileged aunt. Mm. Um, there, we actually see versions of this in the natural world. He's he's not the first organism to trick ants into doing his bidding. Okay, I'm guessing this is stuff to blow your mind. So I'm guessing a parasite's going to come into play here. You know it. You know <laughs> it. <laughs> yeah, uh, particular uh, type of uh, specialized invertebrate parasite uh, that are known. They're, they're generally known and uh, grouped together as uh, remecophiles or ant lovers. And so what they've done is they've they've they trick the ant population into accepting or overlooking their intrusion. And uh, there was a 2015 study published in PLOS 1 that uh, that examined uh, a particular species of beetle, uh, Pipavari, and uh, this particular beetle makes its home inside an ant colony and, you know, a heavily guarded, nearly impenetrable fortress that, that has all of these resources. It seems yeah. like the most dangerous place in the world as as another insect to try and carve out your livelihood, it's like trying to live in Mordor, right? As, <laughs> yeah. a, as a hobbit and just like yeah. stealing food here and there and just convincing everyone that you're that supposed you're to be there. You're also an orc. Yeah. <laughs> so this particular beetle, it seems to achieve this through a complex dance of both chemical and auditory mimicry. So okay. it convinces the ant that it's one of them, even as it feeds on their larvae and benefits from the colony's protection. Wow. Yeah, and. Um, it's uh it it seems like this uh this beetle may even mimic the queen from time to time in order to uh receive royal treatment from uh the surrounding colony. It's like back rubs and stuff. Yeah, or you know, just special protection, special mm-hmm. uh special feeding uh, privileges, but the but it also knows the limits. Like it mm-hmm. otherwise it leaves the queen unharmed. It knows mm-hmm. that's a line it can't cross. Okay. So it doesn't seek to decimate the host colony, but rather to to thrive within it. As a, you know, a perfect parasitic member right, of society. Right. If it started to disintegrate it from within, they'd probably catch on. Yeah. Okay. So I could see, I could see Ant-Man working along those lines. Okay. So there's a scene in Ant-Man, which is super exposition, where they're basically like training him how to use his powers. And Michael Douglas as Hank Pym does this thing where he's like, okay, these are like your <laughs> allies. There's this kind of ant and this kind of ant. And this ant's really, really good for flying on and this ant's going to build a bridge for you and this ant stings really hard right like they all have kind of their own superpower right that he can apply in various situations in fact there's one isn't there one that like absorbs electricity or something like that yeah yeah the the crazy ants um uh, which I, yeah, I'll go ahead and talk about the crazy ant a little bit here. Um, the, the one that we're most familiar with here in the uh, States is the crazy raspberry ant. And, uh, this one continues to make the news as it, you know, invades, uh, Texas and Florida. It rolls over fire ant populations, actually. Like they, they wow. end up wiping those guys out, which it might seem like that's a, that's good. Because uh, crazy ants don't have that painful sting. You don't have to worry about your toddler wandering out and encountering them so much. Uh, but they do have a tendency to just overwhelm a home. They'll short out electrical boxes and crawl up into your computer and short that out, too. And it's still kind of an open question as to why they seem to crave electricity. Uh, but some species of ants are capable of detecting electromagnetic magnetic fields mm-hmm. and might even use the Earth's magnetic field as a navigational tool. Yeah. And then, speculation that birds can do that as well. Yes, too. exactly. Yeah. So that's like that, that's a whole nother like realm of uh, sensory realm that we as humans just don't have access to. Right. So they would be a good ally to have uh, mm-hmm. down there at, uh, at this uh, the smaller uh, level of existence. But there's also the th- a theory that crazy ants just mistake the fields associated with electrical uh, electrical gadgetry as road signs. <laughs> uh, but it's also possible that they're just scouting a new nest. And hey, you look at a computer, right? right Here's what's a, better. Yeah, it's a dry interior. 
there are fewer uh, entry points and exit points. Mm-hmm. It's just a great place, by their estimation, to secure a stronghold. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So, you know, I could see them making good allies. But again, with any of these these ant examples, you also have to say, oh, how is how is Ant-Man convincing them to do all these operations so far away from their colony? Yeah. You've seen it more recently than me. I'm trying to remember how he uses the ants. It's like when he's breaking into the super secure facility, he somehow... Yeah, the crazy ants short out the... Okay. Yeah, the system. Like the force field or whatever it is that's keeping him from getting out. Okay. Well, then there's the bridge building ants. Uh, and I, I have to say, I really liked the, um, the special effects for how they did the ants in particular. Oh yeah. They look great. Favorite parts of the movie. Um, but the bridge building ants, that's for real. Um, fire ants can act like either a fluid or a solid. And in fact, I think we did something on how stuff works now about this recently in like the last month. It might've been Lauren Vogelbaum. Yes, it was. Um, I'll make sure to link to that on the landing yeah, page. Yeah, because it's episode. cool. There's some cool videos from the studies that these guys have been doing. In fact, they're right down the street over at Georgia Tech. Guys, uh, Zhang Yang Liu and David Hugh have observed this, this fluid solid shifting back and forth between, now it's not one fire ant shifting back and forth between states. It's a, a whole colony of them, but they can basically pour themselves out like a liquid or spring back when something presses down on them. In fact, in the video, they show like, it's not like a brick, but it's something heavy and they're pushing down on like 50 <laughs> ants and the ants all kind of like spring back and forth to, to allow, uh, for that pushing. Um, so fire ants, the reason why they have this ability is they have to cope with periodic downpours in their natural environment. So they evolved the ability to clump together into structures. And so um, Liu and Hu are using rheometers, which are used to measure the flow of liquids or slurries like cement. Uh, to, to measure the viscosity and the elasticity of these balls of ants. And they found out that these fire ants can flow and move around as a group, acting like, like thick fluid, right? Or, or, or like rubber in some instances. And yes, they construct bridges to get across gaps in the same way that you see them do this in the, in the movie. Uh, they can also quickly repair any damage to the structure they create, right? So like, Let's say they make a bridge and like a rock falls and it kills like 10 of the ants. Well, the other ants are all, they're all going to uh, sense this and reinforce the living structure and move in. Um, the researchers actually subjected them to different vibrations to cause them to spring into action and fix the bridge at d- different frequencies. Uh, and they also pull closer to each other and tighten their grip to fill in holes, make sure that the structure holds together. Uh, the practical implications here apparently are that they're trying to figure out, well, how do these ants do this so we can replicate it and make self-assembling robots? So that would be fairly interesting if we had these little tiny ant-sized robots that could, you know, theoretically form bridges for us to drive across or something. I'm not I'm not quite sure how they would pull it off. It sounds like we're years away from something like that. But yeah. It would be pretty cool. Yeah, that, that I mean, you'd basically have like a T-1000 kind of uh, Yeah, that's situation. what they compare it to, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, the theory is, well, it's not a theory. They, they show this in the video, actually. If you drop a penny into a, quote, ocean of ants, you've just got this pile of ants, they absorb the impact of the penny dropping, they're catching it, and then slowly lowering it to the bottom of whatever they're in. Huh. Uh, and these live ants will even let go and behave like they're dead in some instances so that they can help decrease the viscosity of the overall ant structure and allow it to have more of a liquid flow to it. Huh. So that part of the science, bridge building ants, yeah, for real. 
Cool, and that actually lines up uh, rather nicely with the raft building ants that we mm-hmm. also see. Yeah. This is, I think, the way that he infiltrates a uh, high security uh, lab is that he yeah. goes in through the water pipes and he's yeah. riding in a, a raft made up of ants joined together into a little structure. Yeah. And we actually see this uh, with a number of different ants. They bind together into a raft when uh, cataclysmic floods threaten the colony. And, um, you know, they, they do this pretty much in the same way that you've described uh, the, the formation of these bridges. Yeah. But but you get into the question like, well, how how do you build that structure? I mean, how do you arrange it? And that yeah. gets really interesting. Right. How do you decide who's the one which which ant has to be underwater and drown? Yeah. I mean, imagine, say, any group of people, you know, the crew of a pirate ship and yeah. you, 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 the ship's sinking and they're like, all right, mateys. Bind together because we're going to form ourselves a new uh, boat made out of your bodies. Um, mm-hmm. Then, you know, what do you do? Cast straws to see uh, who's right. going to be at the bottom, who's going to get to be on top? <laughs> well, there's a, a cool study that looked into this, a 2014 study from Jessica Purcell at the University of La Seine. And she took a closer look at the, the raft's physical and social structure. Specifically, she looked at the functional geometry of rafts in the ant Formica celiesti. These are ants that are abundant in the floodplains uh, throughout the Alps and the Pyrenees. Unsurprisingly, the queen occupies the center of the raft. She's yeah. the most important. She's the package. She is the, the ant man of this, uh, this particular raft. Okay, so this is a scenario where he's probably making them think he's the queen. Yeah, I would imagine. He would have to convince them, hey, I'm the queen, I'm important, yeah. you got to get me through. Okay. So tangled worker ants then make up the outside of the raft. And this is, might come as a shock, but larval ant, that larval ant brood makes up the lowest portions of the craft. So they put the, mm. they essentially put the babies on the bottom, which you wouldn't That's expect, interesting. right? Okay. But uh, Lusain, yeah. <laughs> but Lusain found that since the the brood, uh, the the larvae are the most buoyant members of the colony, they actually survive exceedingly well down there and ultimately work really well oh, okay. as a float. Okay, and so their survival rate is on was on par with the rest of the crew. And when brood items uh, were not available to to build the lower portion of the raft, the worker ants uh, formed the bottom of the raft as well. But they also uh, proved rather resistant to drowning, but required extended recovery time upon landing. So it's 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 interesting to to yeah imagine these ants and think of these ants as this last ditch survival effort. You just bind together into this this raft, this ark, then you're delivered to this new location, and then everybody just starts setting up anew. Wow. Yeah. Just the social communication and decision making amongst ants is so alien and uh, uh, just alien to how we think about things. I, yeah. I mean, when I see ants come into my home through the windowsill up onto the kitchen counter, <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of think about this stuff then. It's like, how do they yeah. how do they decide who's the one like my wife's really into the like uh, non chemical application of like she puts cinnamon across the window sills because uh-huh. they they really don't like cinnamon. Some of them like force their way through the cinnamon and get like <laughs> cough. They, they 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 cough. They cough. Yeah, ants cough. <laughs> they they get covered in this stuff, mm-hmm. and they, you can see them kind of immobile. But the others are like, great, they've made a path for me. I can move on through. It's how do these make these decisions? Yeah, it's crazy. I feel like we every year. There seems like dozens of new ant studies come out. Oh, and there yeah. are always just some really fascinating, really mind blowing bits in there. Like the the most recent one that we did a, a now video on uh, had to do with lazy ants. So these mm-hmm. ants that are in the colony and they seem to just be standing around doing nothing. Uh-huh. And the scientists were trying to figure out, well, why are they doing nothing? Are they? Is there something wrong here? Um, 
are they reserve troops? That seemed to be a, a, oh. a prime theory. So uh-huh. The one theory was that maybe they're relaying communications. Yeah, that's what I would think. But they're not. Thing. It turns yeah. out they're less in tune with the what's going on in the colony than anybody else. Interesting. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, they just completely tuned out. Okay, so we've covered parasites. We've covered bridge building. We've covered the electricity. Uh, what was the stinger ant? That was the bullet ant, right? Like their, their, their bite is particularly bad. And that's true. Yeah. Cause we went into that in the, uh, Ig Nobel episode. Oh yeah, yeah that's remember? right. I forgot all about that. Yeah. Joe yeah. covered that section. Yep. So if you want, if you're saying, Hey, I want to know more about those bullet ants, go back to our, uh, Ig Nobel prize episodes from, I believe November and check those out. And there's one thing about the ants too that I don't have in my notes here, but it, I read it extensively in almost every article about Ant-Man and the science of Ant-Man, which is that they get the gender of the ants wrong because, well, or just Ant-Man himself is giving male names to female ants. Cause yeah. like, isn't his, his buddy ant is Anthony and they were, <laughs> they're saying like Anthony would actually be a female ant because of its particular kind of anatomy. Yeah, and I, you know, I'll buy into that because what does he know about ants, right? Yeah, he didn't really seem to have a whole lot of idea about what was going on there. You'd think he'd do some research. Yeah. Like it, we did. Paul Rudd was great in that role, but I really enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah, his, yeah, it was perfect. I'm looking forward to seeing more of him in these, uh, like I think he's going to be in that Captain America movie next year. Oh yeah, yeah, that's right. That'll add some levity to that. <laughs> And Corey Stahl was really good as the villain. Yeah, uh, Corey Stahl yeah. from The Strain, right? which we also did a, a science of episode. Corey Stahl seems to be finding himself cast in a lot of movies where or movies or television that are like kind of sci-fi. Yeah. Where he's it's kind of in the mix somehow. <laughs> he's always like a, I mean, he was a straight up villain in this, but uh, it's sort of like an anti-hero in his, in his other protagonist roles. Yeah, he's good at playing like was a- he in House of Cards as He well? was. He yeah. played a, a, a flawed- alcoholic character in that and then mm-hmm. he kind of plays the same thing in the strain so he's, he's yeah. great at at playing these uh, these characters with uh, that are fairly cardboard but also have a certain amount of nuance to them so yeah he made for a fun villain and yeah, i like his little zapper that he used on he people. was particularly menacing yeah yeah all right so there you have it uh just a breakdown of some of the science in ant-man the film the comic book series and also touching on some of these uh examples of miniaturization science fiction obviously we didn't touch on absolutely everything uh from Ant-Man or miniaturization sci-fi. So we would love to hear from everybody out there. Uh, what's your favorite piece of uh, miniaturization uh, media? Uh, what are your thoughts on the science of Ant-Man? Yeah, and let us know about this stuff on social media. When this episode comes out, we're going to share it all over the place. But we will also be responding to and listening to your comments there. Uh, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, uh, all those. We are Blow the Mind. And as always, check out StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That is where you will find all the podcast episodes, all those blog posts, uh, some videos, and links out to the social media accounts. And finally, if you want to just talk to us directly about Ant-Man or whatever we've covered on the podcast recently, uh, don't forget to tune into those Periscope shows on Fridays at noon Eastern Standard Time. We'll be around for 20 or 30 minutes talking science, talking horror movies. Usually we end up talking about uh, some kind of monster of the week type scenario. And as always, you want to get in touch with us via email, just shoot us one at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 